Hello and welcome to the In Publishing podcast. My name is James Evely and I'm the editor of In Publishing. Our guest this time is Marcus Fares, founder and editor-in-chief of Design, the successful architecture, interiors and design website, which was acquired in March by the Danish media group JP Politikens. Marcus tells us about his early ambitions for the site when he launched it as a simple blog in 2006. I do remember saying to myself, I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know um, how big it could be or whatever, but I did feel like I could build a global uh, architecture and design media brand on the internet. How a chance encounter with a celebrity A-lister gave him his first big break. And I got invited to a garden party uh, and met Kanye West. He was hobnobbing with the design design crowd and so I went up to him and asked him what he was doing there and um, he told me that he loved design and that he was getting his apartment in Manhattan done. And I persuaded his publicist to send me the first ever images of Kanye West's Manhattan apartment, which caused a viral sensation. It was, it was, a, it was the first time that Dazeen kind of broke out of the little, um, the, the little world of my connections. And his approach to new product development. Our route has always been ideas driven. I mean, maybe too many ideas. <laughs> we we like to try things out. We like to we like to build things to see what happens. We our business model is like based on the MVP model, the minimum viable products. Like we think we can launch a, a recruitment business. How cheaply can we get something up that will establish whether it's possible or not? Amongst many other things. But first, a quick word about our valued sponsors. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Advantage CS, a leading global provider of subscription and membership management software. Capabilities include marketing, sales, payments, and customer relationship software for publishers, membership associations, and information providers. For more information, go to advantagecs.com. Marcus Fares is founder and editor-in-chief of the online architecture, interiors and design site, Design, a brand he launched from his bedroom in 2006. Since then, it has enjoyed considerable growth and won loads of awards. In 2017, Marcus became the first digital journalist to be awarded an honorary fellowship at the Royal Institute of British Architects for the enormous contribution he has made to architecture. Marcus, welcome to the In Publishing podcast. Thank you very much. Hi there. Now, I believe Dazeen, well, that's just said, started in 2006 as a blog from your bedroom. So kind of winding the clock back um, 15 years, what was the thinking at the time and your ambition? Well, this, the, what happened was I was um, I had been editing a print magazine called Icon, an architecture and design magazine, for about two and a half years. And I got fired, I got fired from my job. So I had to find something else to do. Um, and around about that time, I'd noticed as a journalist that the internet was becoming a really valuable source of information. Um, there weren't there weren't many sites about architecture and design that were very good. So I'd I'd already had in my head the idea that maybe um, uh, the internet could be a good platform to launch uh, a magazine. I'd always wanted to be my own boss. I'd always wanted to launch my own publication. Um, and getting fired was the push I needed to propel me into. <laughs> into setting up my own thing. So I set up a, a blog. I got a friend to help me um, install the WordPress installation. 
I spent $20 in total. That was my total upfront investment, $10 on the hosting package, $10 on my uh, on the domain name. And I just started playing around with it. I, I allowed myself initially to spend an hour a day on it. The rest of the time was dedicated to trying to make a living. We had two young children at the time. Um, but it, it started to take off really quickly, actually. People just found out about it. Um, and and to, to answer your question about the ambitions for it, I, I do remember saying to myself, I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know um, how big it could be or whatever, but I did feel like I could build a global uh, architecture and design media brand on the internet. And I did feel that I could do that more quickly than in print, which had obviously been the other way of launching your own magazine was to launch a print magazine. I didn't have the money for that and I didn't have the patience for that either. And do you think if you hadn't been fired, that you know, that stroke of luck, as it now appears, you would have come, would, would the zine have never have happened? I think it's very likely. Um, uh, I, I had the idea. I had the idea for the name. I had the idea for how it would work. But it's it's very easy to just stay in your job, isn't it? No matter how miserable mm. you are or, or whatever. Um one thing I definitely didn't want to do was I didn't want to then go and edit another magazine for someone else and then edit another magazine for someone else and find myself sort of in my mid fifties, just wondering who was going to be my next boss and what project I was going to be given. I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. So, um, and, and also to be honest, I'm, I'm not the easiest employee so <laughs> it was probably so going to the only route open to you. It, it, well, it was probably going to end in tears one way or the other sooner or later. Uh, and the, the great thing about it, fortunately, I got t- fired at a time where you could um, start a, a simple blog with no investment and build it into something. You know, in, in hindsight, my timing was impeccable. All my 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 agitated bosses was timing was impeccable. Well, well, thank you to them, I suppose. Um, and you mentioned the name Dazine. Where, where did that come from? You obviously had the idea. Yeah, so I'd been looking for a domain name that kind of did what it said on the tin. So I was looking for combinations of design and magazine. All the obvious ones had gone. I thought that people would get that, you know, Zine is a, sh- a shortened form of magazine. Uh, De is design. Design magazine. I thought everyone would find that really obvious, but <laughs> to this day, people are really surprised when I explain it to them. For for a long time, I was getting emails uh, addressed to Mister Design. I think people assumed I was a All sort right. of South African or a Dutchman behind this website. And do people who who don't know Design well do they, do they assume it's a print magazine? Do they assume when you call yourself a magazine that it has to be print? We still do get emails from people saying, um, "Can you send me your print?" copy uh, or you know what kind of resolution images should we send for the print version okay. um that perhaps is because of of us calling it a magazine but i i called it a magazine from the outset because in 2006 the word blog already had loaded connotations and lots of blog bloggers were kind of people who weren't professional writers who were a bit ranty who were using their blogs to kind of vent their personal vendettas. And I wanted Dazine to be a professional and kind of neutral platform. Uh, I wanted to, to distance myself from the kind of world of blogging. Um, so I called it a magazine to make it sound more <laughs> more kind of important and um, I suppose conservative in a way. 
Excellent. And since then, the site has grown hugely and now attracts, I think, three million unique visitors a month. Um, yeah, more than, yeah. Oh, wow. So what's the figure now? It depends on the time of year, but actually this period, um, March and April, is usually our um, most busiest period of the year. And we easily get like three and a half million unique visitors in <clears throat> in March and April. And then, of course, it's sort of Christmas. December is usually a bit more of a doldrums month mm. because of Christmas. So if you, if you if you look back 15 years and you, you trace the the route from then to now, um, what have been the, the key milestones along the way? You obviously started as a, a very small, I'll say the word blog one more time, but that's what you started as. And now you're, you know, a, a large site. What were the key key milestones? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't mind calling it a blog now because it, it is, because it's based on WordPress and it's we've kept that very simple blog structure of, of basically... Um, reverse chronological publishing it's a stack of stories basically it's a feed um, key milestones were um, well I, my first viral story was a key milestone and, and which led to the first time we had I think more than 1,000 visitors in the same day which at the time felt absolutely extraordinary um, that was another stroke of luck uh, I'd in the, within a couple of weeks of setting up uh, the zine I'd flown out to Miami because there's a big design fair out there called Design Miami, and I and I kind of made it my mission to introduce myself to the people that ran that fair and get to know all of the the people on the scene out there and you know pick up some stories. And I got invited to a garden party. Uh, I met Kanye West. He was hobnobbing with the design design crowd, and so I went up to him and asked him what he was doing there. And um, he told me that he loved design and that he was getting his apartment in Manhattan done. And I persuaded his publicist to send me the first ever images of Kanye West's Manhattan apartment, which caused a viral sensation. It was, it was, a, it was the first time that Dazeen kind of broke out of the little um, the, the little world of my connections because I never did any marketing. I never bought any ads or anything like that. It just it was literally word of mouth. But that was the first story that propelled it beyond the kind of smallish design cognoscenti world. And is that the secret of a viral story, um, getting someone like Kanye West involved? No, no, there's there's all kinds of, well, I wish I knew the secret to a viral story, but there's all kinds of different reasons why stories go viral. But that was the first time it had happened for me and the zine. I mean, basically what happened was the American hip-hop community picked up on it. So we suddenly had this, um, this kind of culture clash of all these people who are into hip-hop coming onto the zine, trying to figure out these weird architectural renderings and and you know posting comments asking where the toilet was and you know how <laughs> how, how the hell could you cook an omelet in that kitchen and things like that which was really really hilarious um but you know i wasn't i didn't care it was, it was eyeballs and it was buzz and it was great uh, and the next milestones after that well i suppose around about the same time um i got the first people inquiring about advertising or cl paid collaborations so so i launched a zine on the 17th on the 17th of november 2006 and the kanye west story i published it the following january so within two months and around about that same time people started to get in touch um and saying oh can we advertise on your site oh you've got a blog um we're you know i i, I picked up a couple of commissions from cultural institutions to run blogs for them so that was when uh, it started to look like I could turn it into a business. I'd gone into it thinking, I'm sure there's a business model in here somewhere, but not didn't have any idea what that might be. Um, 
but people started to come forward and offer um, cash, basically, to do collaborations or straightforward advertising. Um, and people started to ask about video. So I bought a video camera and <laughs> became a videographer without any training. So that was probably a really, that was a key moment as well when it, it became obvious that there was a business model in this somehow. Uh, and at what point did you, you know, branch out from being a one-man band and start taking on on people? Probably after about um, four or five months, people started to write in saying, can I be your intern or can I have a job? Which <laughs> which was great. So I I I had a series of interns who initially would come to our house, you know, they knock on the door when we were, <laughs> my wife was breastfeeding or I'd be changing nappies. <laughs> these, <laughs> these youngsters, hip youngsters coming in and sort of sitting down at a you know, makeshift desk with a sort of borrowed laptop. Well, they bring their own, I think, in the early days. Um, and then and I took... Didn't, that didn't put them off? No, it was, it was great. <laughs> it was really exciting. I mean, like actually, the first intern I had is now like a fairly successful curator in 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 switzerland she sort of runs a museum um the my first employee i think i she my first employee rose um was it started out as an intern and she was so good that i offered her a job and that was i think within like eight or nine months of starting she's now sort of very high powered exec in a in the digital world um and 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 then I started to get travel opportunities, um, which didn't go very down very well domestically, obviously. So I came up with the idea of my wife for her to come into partnership with me. She had a background in television production. So we thought, well, why don't we run this together? Because then we don't have to answer to anyone. Um, we can be totally flexible about our diaries and travel and things like that. So my wife became my business partner, I think, after a year or so. Um, and then I think after 14 or 15 months, we got our first shared office and then we were almost a company by that point. Excellent. Well, very exciting. Obviously a perfect team. Yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of grown ever since then. So, you know, we, we now have just under 30 members of staff and a proper office now rather than a sort of um, a shared one or a, we were in a, in a former dentist a doctor's surgery for a few years in Stoke Newton we I, I, I myself knocked down all the all the internal walls in this weird um, doctor's surgery and turned it into an office so we, we really we've really worked from the ground up it's really been a, a a story of building something from from literally nothing yeah I suppose the joys of a startup when you have to do literally everything yeah. making tea and knocking <laughs> walls down yeah exactly now, now you've said that you, um, you to quote we want Dazine to forever be a bastion of independent journalism a champion of architecture and design and a force for good in the world um, wh what did you mean by being a force for good in, in the kind of publishing context well I'm a journalist through and through even though I studied uh, design um, uh, the thing that I, I discovered that I was good at whilst I was studying design actually was was, was writing about um, architecture and design. I kind of understood it and I could communicate ideas and um, much better than I could actually design. I was a hopeless designer. And, um, <laughs> That's very honest. And, uh, but I was quite a late starter, so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I traveled and I worked in bars and shops and all that kind of thing and then lived in Spain for a while and then came back when I was approaching 30 thinking I really need to get a career under my belt. So I did a postgraduate uh, journalism course at 
at um, uh, it's uh, London College of Printing, as it was then, and um, found that I was really good at news journalism. I had absolutely no idea. I just loved it, and I could do it really, really easily, and, and fell in love with the idea of, of journalism, and um, really um, became. Yeah, that became that became my trade and, and, and always felt that journalism was an undervalued profession, that it was important. Um, and with Dezine, I really wanted it to be the best quality wise in, in the field. That It's very easy to or it was very easy in those days to set up a blog and not have any quality or any integrity or um, any values. But Dezine always had those values. We weren't always able to live up to them because we were so short staffed and living on a shoestring but it, it really felt important to me that that we that our stories were accurate that if we made a mistake we corrected them and that we had some kind of um agenda is not the quite word but but some kind of like moral compass that uh, helped us take the industry in a direction that we felt was a way it should be going um particularly in terms of things like diversity particularly in terms of things like climate change and pollution and things like that, to, to, to not, like not lecture people on what to do, but to, by, by curating the site in a certain way, we could help lead the industry rather than simply report on what it was doing, if you know what I mean. And then, of course, that became even more important when, when we were in this awful period of fake news and, and people like Trump denigrating journalists. And um, it felt like the, the media and journalism in particular were, were under some kind of existential threat, that it was like the business model had disappeared. Um, the, the, the trade had been, been denigrated for political reasons by certain leaders around the world. And then social media was eating our lunch and at the same time allowing kind of bullshit facts to be circulated willy-nilly it really felt like that journalism was something worth standing up for so that that if that if that makes sense that's the answer to that that question no it, no, it certainly does and if you look at journalism as a whole what, what do you think is the the best defense against these spurious accusations of fake news and the denigration which certainly came you know loud and clear from from trump um well i think it, it, it's we're in a much better place now in the world now that Trump's gone, to be honest. It feels like we've all believed a, a, a breathed a, a collective sigh of relief. And then also Dezine has been through a, a really important change in the last few weeks because we've, we've sold the company to a, a Danish media group. And that's been a very interesting journey as well because the um, JP Politikens, who's the company that's bought us, has a really strong um, journalistic ethos. It, it's owned by two trusts. Um, that believe in the importance of journalism for democracy. And so when I first started having a conversation with them, um, the, 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 the conversation was along the lines of journalism is important for democracy, but you can only have good journalism if you have a good business model behind the journalism. Uh, and that's not easy these days, but um, Dezine, as it happened, had kind of figured it out. So the answer to the question, how do we preserve journalism in in the face of all these threats is like come up with a way of doing good journalism that makes a profit is the sort of the answer which is fiendishly difficult to do but we now have a parent that believes in that and has acquired us uh 
because that's what we've been doing for 15 years. For, for businesses and people considering or, or considering launching a new brand from scratch, as you did um, back in 2006, do you have any kind of words of wisdom, any key do's and don'ts? Um, well, yes. I mean, I suppose that the way I've done it is not the typical way to do it at all. It's, it's not, there's <laughs> no... In what way? Would, well, usually you would, I suppose, write a business plan, do some research into the sector, get some investment. I didn't do any of those kind of things. I mean, I was forced into it, as I explained, because I got I got fired from my job. But I think that the thing that that is is it is true for anyone who starts a business is do something that that you believe in and that you know about. I mean, it's it's so much easier to to launch a business in a field where you already know the people, you know how it works, um, you've got some kind of, um, you've got relationships with people rather than going into something you, you've never heard of because you think it's a bit of a gold rush. Um, and, and also that when you're putting in those, those hours, you know, day after day with no financial payback, <laughs> either that day or on the horizon, if it's something that you really love doing, it's like you, you'll take that pain on the chin. It, it doesn't matter. Like it, it, it's sort of you can just convince yourself that it's your hobby rather than your business. So, so to doing something in an area that you know and love is definitely, definitely a good idea, I would say. And, and looking back on, on your 15 years, would you have done anything different um, with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, I think probably would have been a good idea to have got some investment because it probably would have been able to move much quicker. And I think the single um, the single thing I would have changed is I would have got a salesperson or a sales team on board quicker. I think it took three years before I hired a salesperson. I was doing all the sales myself to start with. And then suddenly, like sitting next to someone who was just on the phone all the time saying, you know, trying to persuade people to part with money and emailing dozens of people, just thinking like, why didn't I do this earlier? <laughs> I could have saved myself so much pain and it would have allowed me to focus on what I'm quite good, what I'm good at, which is the journalism and, and brand building side of things. And um, I became quite good at the technology side of things as well. But the sales things never been my strong points. And there are lots of brilliant people out there who um, should have got on board earlier. Well, it seems that sales is is one area where, you know, obviously it's vital for all publishers, um, but but some struggle with it. I mean, from what you've seen of salesmen you've employed, what, what are their, the, the skills which make that a good salesman stand out? Or person, I should salesperson. say. Salesperson. Yes. Um, well, like all kinds of things. But I mean, first of all, you have to have a product that's worth selling. I mean, that's like, that. that's absolutely key to it. So you have to have things that people want to buy at a price that people are willing to, um, uh, willing to engage with your offering. Um, and then, I, I personally, for me, we, we want salespeople who like just people that you can spend time with in an office and um, have enjoy traveling with, and so on and so forth. I think that not just salespeople, but, but all members. When you're building a company, you want people who you can get on with and and admire and have a falling out with, but it not lead to bitter recriminations so that's that those are qualities when we interview people no matter what role it's for one of the questions we ask ourselves not out loud but quietly to ourselves is is this a disease person is this the kind of person that we wouldn't get annoyed with or we wouldn't um find their you know their music taste or something a, a bit 
kind of annoying. Um, do they do they fit in? But that that's really important as well, I think, as well as their kind of skill set. Most people can be can be taught the skills that they need. Most people are, are able to kind of to to learn the gaps in their in their knowledge. But personality is really important, I think. Okay, the the this year has obviously been the year of the pandemic since March last year. Um, what things have Dazeen done differently as a result of COVID nineteen? Oh my God! But I mean, this year has been an absolute roller coaster. So you know, one year ago now we were all in lockdown, and I mean, we were looking at our business model collapsing around us. I mean, there were weeks in in March and April last year when no money was coming in whatsoever. I mean, a lot of our business is based on events, so you know, doing videos at design events, um, talks for brands. Um, advertising around product launches, which happen at design fairs. Um, we have a recruitment advertising business. Of course, no one was recruiting. I mean, we really thought we weren't going to see it, see the summer out, so let alone the year. Um, so um, we were staring down the barrel of a of a very large gun. Um, but what we decided to do was, we just thought if there are no events in the design world and architecture world, if people aren't able to go to Milan or whatever the next fair is, why don't we do our own one? So we came up with the idea of doing a virtual design fair on our on our website in the hope that people would spend their marketing budgets with us rather than at the events they would have gone to. Um, and, and miraculously, it works. We, we came up with something that we were first out of the starting blocks with a, with a digital festival. Um, People really enjoyed it. It brought people together during those dark days of the first lockdown. Got tons of press out of it, and it, and we came up with all these new digital only business uh, like business ideas, which uh, have now become part of our portfolio or are becoming part of our portfolio. So we really pivoted the entire business <laughs> in a, in the course of several weeks. From our spare bedrooms, it was like it was like starting the company all over again. To be honest, like you know, being back at home again, I wasn't on my own because there were twenty five, twenty six other people dotted around the place, but you you couldn't see any of them. And this virtual fair, um, you know, presumably you didn't have a platform; you'd never done one before. Uh, how quickly did you turn that round? And looking back on it, what were the the pluses and minuses and any you know what did you do well and what looking back on it didn't go quite so well um well we we came up with the idea okay what didn't go well was we managed to offend all of italy by uh, the the big the big um the big design for in 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 our world is it takes place in milan each april the salone de mobile the international furniture fair and that got cancelled obviously because of the pandemic and that was the big event that shook the zine because we usually fly 20 people out to Milan, all of our video crew are there, all our journalists and everything like that. But we thought, well, let's do a digital version of, the, of Milan Design Week. So we, we, we came up with the idea, I think, on a Wednesday at virtualmilan.com. We announced right. it on Thursday. By Friday, lots of Italian social media people were saying, "Who? what the hell do you think you're doing? You're taking advantage of our misery during the pandemic you vultures so by friday we changed it to virtual design festival um but then we still got an onslaught of bad publicity from 
Italy, which was like an absolute disaster on top of a disaster. It was the <laughs> single worst moment in my entire professional life. Um, so, and but they then, were offended. I, I can see why they might have been offended by virtual Milan. But once you changed your name, they they were still upset. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it, it, it didn't. It didn't go down. Still didn't go down very well. But we just then we bided our time for a couple of weeks just to see whether because there was still talk that the Milan fair might happen later in the year. Um, so we didn't want to be accused of treading on any toes again. And then we waited. And about two weeks after we'd made our first announcement, um, the Milan Furniture Fair announced it was cancelled for the year. So then we went live with our announcement. Um, so it, the incubation period was two weeks. And then I think we started the festival two weeks after that. Um, so we were up and running within four weeks of having the idea. And that, that fair festival ran for three months in the end. We kept extending it because it was fantastic. And with the Italians on board? Yeah, I think we've managed to mend lots of the bridges. <laughs> yeah, we, we, def- we definitely reached out to Italy and been very you know, apologetic. I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote a, like a first-person apology for offending people. I mean, if, you, right. if you make a mistake, you should just fess up as quickly and yeah. as comprehensively as possible. Um, so I think that's behind us now. Yeah, and it was so successful. Good. I mean, it was just it was it was great. Actually, it was great to have something to get up in the morning for during those, you know, really tough days. Do you remember back last March, April, May? I do. Mm. Yeah. So I mean that that virtual the virtual design festival is that going to be a, a recurring event for you now, even after the lockdown is over? No, because what happened was we came up with all these ideas for, I mean, it, it was a festival in the sense there was lots of cultural content. Like every day we did collaborations with museums and we did live interviews and we did music performances. We really um, we really explored what you could do digitally with a limited number of tools, i.e. a WordPress blog, Zoom, um, uh, YouTube, social media <laughs> and the tools at our disposal were really basic actually um and then we also came up with a whole bunch of um revenue generating ideas so for example we knew that none of the design and architecture schools could have their graduation shows because of the pandemic so we offered a platform where they could do that virtually it was paid for but it was very very affordable we launched a, a, a digital version of a design show so brands could pay to put their products in a special section of this site and it was all it was all a blog it wasn't there was no sort of 3d fly-throughs or vr or anything like that it was just pictures and text um that proved very successful we came up with a series of um um we came up with a way of doing video virtually so you know through zoom or through um working with local crews around the world. So we came up with a kind of an entire video offering that it, that didn't involve travel, which has been very successful. So with all of these services and, and a few others, we've, we've, been, we've spent the rest of the time since the summer turning them into permanent services, um, which we've, we've kind of done all of them now, apart from one, which is we're taking on an additional office space to create a, a dedicated video studio, which we're about to sign the, the lease on. So we're not going to do virtual design festival again, but its legacy lives on because all of the the paid for services that we came up with are now part of our stable of of services. 
So I mean, that's fantastic. Um, so really, if you look out, you know, in years to come, when you look back at the pandemic, despite the initial panic and the worries about the very existence of the business, it, it led to a number of innovations which will be with you for many years to come. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Now, it's, uh, you, you've written a book. In fact, I think you've written a number of books, but one, one book in particular was called 21st Century Design, and that looks at design icons. Can you give us some idea of your own design preferences by maybe taking a couple of your favourites and telling us what's special about them? Sure. Well, the first thing to say is that that book, 21st Century Design, is the thing that got me fired because I hadn't, right. told, I hadn't told my bosses at my previous job that I was working on it. And I just... It's funny, I didn't want to ask you why you were fired, uh, but, and that, that's uh, good to know. <laughs> I, I thought it was best to keep it quiet in case they caused a problem. I thought I'd wait till it came out and then show it to them it was as a face complete but they got really upset oh. and, it, and it it led to my um dismissal um but also i yeah i was commissioned to write a book called 21st century design and it was published in 2006 but there hadn't been much 21st century design to write about by that point to be honest so looking back on that book it was um it, it kind of captured the zeitgeist of what was happening at the beginning of the 21st century um, and a few things uh, stand out and are still relevant. One is uh, a massive return to decoration in design, which, you know, the 20th century was dominated by modernism, which was pretty much dedicated to getting rid of ornaments and unnecessary colour and decoration and stuff. That started to come back in the 20th, 21st century. Um, the return of interest in craft, um, which is still with us, um, Technology was starting to become a big influence, not just as a tool to create architecture and design, but as a, a vehicle for expression in itself. Like buildings started to look like pixels, or buildings started to look like, you know, curves on a computer screen. And then, probably most importantly, the rise of the environmental agenda. So, um, so looking back on that book, I don't. I'm not sure that there are that many buildings or objects that stand the test of time, to be honest, that would count among my greatest design moments of the 21st century now that we're sort of one-fifth of the way through it. But I think the book definitely did point to some fairly major changes of emphasis that the whole design world was going through and is still going through. Over the years, the design site has been described as seductive and a beautiful place to spend time. Um, how have you managed to achieve this? Uh, and what are the design imperatives that you put into your own site? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a design website. So it goes without saying that it has to be beautifully designed. We're lucky, obviously, because architecture and design tends to look nice. So visually, that gives us a head start over lots of other sectors where you don't have such nice visual material to work with. Um also, though, when you combine the visuals of of the the content um, with the the aesthetic aspects of journalism, i.e., like you know, headlines that are well crafted and proper intelligent paragraphing and pull quotes and all of that furniture stuff, and um, and then the the kind of the UX stuff of of making it really obvious where people should click and making it as clean as possible and as minimal as possible. 
uh, together with working with a great um, art director, we worked with Misha Weidman, who's a Swiss typographer, which I love the idea of working with someone who's from a classic, you know, type on paper um, kind of background. Who's, you know, we work obsessively to we have endless conversations about everything. Like, can we make it simpler? Can we make it simpler? Dazine has one headline font and one body copy font, just like like things that, that most people wouldn't even notice that are obsessively thought through. <laughs> weeks, we spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about things like this. That all of that combined, hopefully, well, it, I think it's demonstrated that that's quite an appealing package. It looks nice. It's easy to find your way around. Um, so people keep coming back. Simple and over the really. years, over the uh, over the fifteen years, have you had any major redesigns, any major changes of fonts, or anything like that, where you've thought, "Well, we've been doing it this way for the last five years. Let's do it a completely different way," or has it just evolved gently over the time? So when I started Zine, obviously, like on my own with no help from anyone apart from um, my friend Alex Wilkshire, who set up WordPress for me, went around to his flat and we did it, set it up in like two hours, I think, over a couple of glasses of wine. So initially the design of of the scene was almost deliberately bad. Uh, The fonts, I used Courier, you know, the typewriter fonts, um, because I thought that was quite funny, like a a design website that used like a really basic font. But I thought that was kind of quite evocative of me at home, like just tapping away on my keyboard with two fingers. Um, And then I met... Misha, Misha Weidman, the, the, the typographer I was talking about very early on through one of these commercial projects that came up. Actually, the Design Museum in London saw my blog and said, could you run the blog for this Zaha Did exhibition we're doing? Um, and by the way, we've got this great young graphic designer to design the blog for us. And they showed me the design of the blog that they were doing. And it was like, that was the best looking blog I'd ever seen. So I immediately got in touch with and said can you do design for me and so in 2000 and summer of 2004 so design was six seven months old Misha designed that logo for us the kind of lopsided design logo and chose the, the font accidents grotesque which is our headline fonts and did a layout for us which we launched I think in September 2004 sorry what am I talking about 2007 um, which has been with us ever since. And we have, in the inter- intervening years, had conversations and even spent um, amounts of money that I, I winced to think about with other design studios to, to change it up, like give us something new, we want to move on. But in the end, we've always gone back to Misha. We've always thrown away what other studios have has, have given us. And we've kind of got the same <laughs> the same design um outlook as we had in 2007 um obviously well, that's a huge compliment to her isn't it yeah 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 i mean his design has really stood the oh, test his, of, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah. stood the test of time is evolved but it's also kind of it's very interesting that in a, in an if you think back to 2006 when design started uh, twitter had just launched like a few weeks before uh facebook didn't exist instagram didn't exist i think youtube started around exactly the same time there were no iphones you think how much change there's been in the digital world since then yet it looks more you would it doesn't look the same because we've gone from a three column grid to a two column grid obviously the the change in banner ad sizes has driven a lot of layout changes and, and things like that but you would recognize the two sites side by side you would you would 
you would you would know that they're, they're the same thing, uh, even fourteen years apart, which is kind of really extraordinary. I think. I think that's very refreshing because I think some some publishers do tend to kind of go for a redesign, you know, almost as a matter of course. But if you don't need to, and you've you know you've got the right fonts, what why bother? Yeah, and also as I said, we twice we worked with really trendy um, web design studios, um, thinking we could they would come up with something better, and there was always like some fairly fundamental wrong thinking in what they gave us it looked very nice but we just knew it wouldn't work we know how our audience um, navigates our site we we know how they flow through it we know what they're interested in and um and 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 misha is like intuitively understands that as well and um and also is very proud of the way that we've looked after his brand to be honest i mean it's um he's given us this this um this kit of parts that can endlessly be reconfigured and 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 extended, and our branding strategy is just put another word after design. So design jobs, uh, design talks, design studio. For a while, we had design watch store. It's very kind of like Lego like building blocks of of branding strategy. But we haven't we haven't run out of we haven't run out of road of that yet on that yet. Uh, well, that leads me nicely to the next question about revenue models. You know, wh- what are the trends in? Well, how do you make, where do you make your money, and uh, and what are the trends in that? So the the obviously the the first type of revenue I got was advertising, um, and the second type of revenue I got almost around the same time was branded content. I mean, I didn't know it was brand, we didn't call it branded content then, but that's what it was like creating content for brands basically that look like content rather than advertising and all of the 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 media that was talking about digital media was always saying that um, online advertising revenue was going to go downhill that you know rates cpm rates were going to decline don't build a business strategy on advertising so kind of went out of our way to come up with as many different revenue streams as we could in the expectation that display advertising would collapse, which it, in fact, it, it never did. It's still <laughs> really strong for us. So display revenue is still our strongest earner. Um, uh, second strongest earner is our studio. So we have our own in-house video team um, and, and creative team that, that works with brands to produce videos for them, to do talks. Um, we take we work like an agency taking creative briefs from, from brands as well. Um, and then we have our classified models, which so we have our job site, which is a sort of pay to put an ad up kind of thing. And the classified um, offering is expanding now due to these new services that I was just mentioning that we developed during virtual design service. So we have a, a service for schools where they can present their student work. We have a service for brands to present their products, which is called Zine Showroom. We've got a couple of other ideas for classified um, offerings as well. Um, and then, actually, the one I haven't mentioned at all uh, throughout this talk is our awards program. We launched an awards program four years ago, which is a pay to enter. It's very cheap for people to enter, but so it's sort of like uh, the, the, get, the goal is to get as many entries as possible. But that's been unbelievably successful. We had, um, had over 4,000 entries even last year during the pandemic. And so far, entries this year are like 50% up on last year so far. It's quite early in our entry period. But um, yeah, so we have like six or seven different 
revenue streams. Um, the idea is that when some of them aren't doing well, others will be doing well. So we're kind of hedging our bets. Um, and um, yeah, that's that's how, we, that's how we do it. And at the recent takeover announcement, which I think just was early this month, um, you said that the acquisition will help further your ambitious growth plans. And JP Plitiken described the business as having plenty of what they called unrealized potential. Where do you see the future opportunities for Dazine? Oh my God. I mean, we, 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 we fall over ourselves with ideas of what we can do. Um, and I, I suppose that in terms of the business story, the, the audience story of Dazine is really simple. It's grown every year for 15 years. There hasn't been a year when we haven't grown um, audience, we haven't grown social media, we haven't grown newsletter subscribers. Business-wise, it's been a bit more of a complex story because in 2019, our sector got really badly hit by Brexit worries. So we saw our first ever decline in revenue in 2019. Uh, we came into 2020 beginning of last year thinking right we're back on track and then of course the pandemic hit so we, we took another hit so uh we that, they, that really clipped our wings actually because we had big plans to expand into the us we had an, an office in new york an editorial office in new york which we had to close last year as a cost-saving measure we had plans to move into china we we're about to solve to sign a joint venture with a chinese partner to to build up um, our awards program in China and our social, our WeChat presence. Um, we had all these other ideas, which we had to sort of put on ice. But now, um, 2021, we're running, dashing out of the blocks again and um, feel like confident to kind of roll out all of those ideas that we had to hold back on. So in terms of our, our growth plans, we, we already had them. We had to put them on ice for a couple of years. Um, and when... When the conversation with um, JP about an acquisition got serious, we just showed them our, our business plan. We had to do a bit more work on it, you know, like firm up the numbers a bit and things like that. But they bought into a, a journey that we were already embarked on. Um, they will be like a big brother holding our hands and, you know, helping us in sticky situations. But they're not, they don't need to inject cash into us. Um, that's already that's already accounted for through, you know, we're entirely revenue funded. So, so the acquisition is, is, is it gives Dazine a, a sort of safe harbour for, for the future. It allows the brand to continue long after I've gone, which is I wanted to leave Dazine in a strong place to not be reliant on me. Um, it's, a, it's a very good partner in terms of ethical outlook and, as I was saying, diversity and attitudes to climate change and things like that. And also, you know, my partner and I, we've been able to take some cash out of the business to reward us for 15 years of, Lovely. of, of um, back-breaking work. So don't have any embarrassment about that at all. No, why, why not? Well, every business owner aspires to it. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, when, when you look at the wider B2B publishing sector, where do you think you know, publishers should be focusing their energies in the next few years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 not like there's there's any one route. I mean, our our route is has always been ideas driven. I mean, maybe too many ideas. Uh, we, we we like to try things out. We like to we like to build things to see what happens. We our business model is like based on the um, the MVP model, the minimum viable products. Like we think we can launch a, a recruitment business. 
how cheaply can we get something up that will establish whether it's possible or not? And we you know honestly we launch we sometimes we launch revenue services for like the low hundreds of pounds. And you soon find out whether there's an appetite for that. And then if you if it doesn't work, you haven't lost very much. And if it does work, then you can feel confident to invest a bit of cash in development and branding and then and people. So, so what's your win win lose um ratio then on these MVPs? Um uh, pretty high actually. Um pretty high. <laughs> I mean most of them most of them have have worked. We I, we did we did try e-commerce. We had a watch store for a while which lasted about five years and just became too much of a distraction. So we're not sentimental at all. We're more than happy to kill to kill something off if it's not working. But but to go back to your question about um what the future is, um our our, our new parent company in Denmark is is, is has a subscription model. Eighty percent of their revenue comes from subscription, just twenty percent from advertising, and that's flipped from twenty eighty in the last few years. They they strongly believe that getting people to pay um, subscriptions to particularly B two B media is the future, and and we kind of feel that that will definitely be a part of our future as well. Um, we, we're not going to slap a paywall or even a premium wall on our content anytime soon, but we do think that that's, there's a big opportunity for us there to kind of create some kind of um, paying, um, paying model whereby people get something beyond what everyone else gets on the website. And in fact, we've just announced um, a thing called the Zine Club. So we, what we've done is um, bundled together the idea of a social club with the idea of a, a subscription model, called it a club. And um, we just stuck that out there to see what will happen. And we're going to have a like a, a virtual gathering in a couple of weeks' time to test that. So that's our minimum viable product model. Um, let's see what happens if we tell everyone we're launching a membership club and have an event and see what see how it see how it works out um so we'll know a bit more about how it worked out in a couple of weeks time but the the it seems to be going really well because the 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 thinking behind it is that in in these pandemic times and even post pandemic times I, I don't think we're going to be going back to how it was before anytime soon i don't think people thousands of people are going to be flying out to cram into a convention center somewhere in the world anytime soon um, the digital realm can solve, can do most of the things that the real world can do, apart from the social. That's what people are missing. They're missing hanging out with their friends. They're missing chance encounters. They're missing having some drinks and having a bit of a natter and a gossip. So, so we're experimenting ways of giving, allowing people to do that uh, through their computers virtually. That's 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 the kind of the the. The, the club part of our membership ambition and membership see where it goes from there exactly well yeah. good luck yeah. good luck thank you um finally finally marcus outside of work a question we ask all our, our guests outside of work um how do you relax um well i do love working i suppose most entrepreneurs would say the same thing so i do really enjoy <laughs> looking after the zine and i spend a lot of time you know editing comments and creating tags and, and things like that but when I'm not doing the zine stuff, I love gardening. Um, I'm I'm not very good at gardening, um, but I, I love tinkering around with plants. 
I love walking um, and I love making music. My, 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 my alternative career would have been uh, a composer. So I spent a lot of time making audio recordings and composing music. Oh, so what, what kind of music would you compose if you, if you had the chance? Oh, all kinds, really. Yeah. Um, I've, I kind of have got lots of ballady songs and rock and some, some kind of club tracks and things like that. Just um, sort of a bit all over the place, to be honest, but um, always very melody, melody driven, like tunes. And will any of them ever see the light of day? Oh yeah, yeah, outside no, of your own four walls. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've definitely decided I'm going to complete all of my tracks at some point. I'm going to, um, yeah, get them mastered and and release them somehow. Not in any expectation of success, but just so that they're in the world somehow. But I'm unbelievable. I have no shyness whatsoever as a journalist. It's very weird. I I can go up to Kenya West at a garden party and ask him a question. I'm absolutely <laughs> terrified of the idea of, of singing in public. <laughs> it's very, oh, really? very, I don't really understand it. Yeah. Is that because you don't think you've got a good voice or because you're just shy in that regard? Yeah, I don't really know. I think I have got, <laughs> I have got quite a good voice, um, but it's just, it's just one of those things, isn't it? So if I, so I will put my music out there probably under some kind of pseudonym. I mean, I don't, I don't mean probably, I mean, definitely I've got, I've got my music brand sourced out. I just need to get the music finished. <laughs> Well, I was about to say we'll look forward to that, but of course we won't know when it's happened, will we? So, unless it's a massive success, and then I'll unmask myself as the the, the guy behind <laughs> this, you know, this strange music brand. Well, I look forward to hearing that, Marcus Fairs. Thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast. Thank you for speaking to me. We would like to thank Advantage CS again for sponsoring this podcast. Advantage CS has been developing subscription management solutions for the information industry since 1979. The comprehensive functionality, adaptability and scalability of its software helps leading publishers around the world manage their businesses more effectively. Find out more at advantagecs.com. Many thanks to Marcus for giving us such a fascinating insight into his business. I loved the emphasis on high standards, even in the early days when resources were tight. And I look forward to the release of Marcus's first album, even though it sounds like we won't know it's him until well after the event. If you want to know more about Dazine, then check out their website at dazine.com. Marcus is also active on Twitter, where his handle is at Marcus Fairs. If you're interested in reading the book that got Marcus fired, in 21st Century Design is available on Amazon. Thank you for listening, and do join me in two weeks' time for another in-publishing podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>